um, we got the privilege to celebrate Brother Jerry Kidd, one of our pastors who we love very much. Uh, and last Sunday he became Dr. Jerry Kidd. Very, thank you very much. And he's, he loves it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not over the joking yet. And he told me this morning, he said, that's about enough of that. So I'm, I'm maybe, I'm pushing it, I think, a little bit. But uh, anyway, we, we celebrated his birthday, his 80th birthday, which was this past Monday. And, and then also just the ministry and the work that, that God has done through him and Mrs. Sue. And their love for Jesus, their love for the church, their love for mission around the world. And it was a beautiful service. I encourage you to go back and watch it if you didn't get a chance to be with us. And also, as we get into our new series, which is kind of our old series, the series we've gone through for the last two separate summers, I really encourage you, if you missed some of those, go back to some of those uh, messages and watch those on our website or and listen to them in the iTunes podcast app. Just put in the name of our church and you can find that there. But uh, you can catch up with us. And also, let me just say, I'm not going to do a ton of recap this morning. I would encourage us all basically to go back into the Word and read Acts 1 through 13 at least to kind of get us caught up and kind of remembering where we are in the story. That would be something I think would be good for us all to kind of refresh our minds on some of those things. Well, one of the things I want us to do this morning is uh, kind of remember, I mentioned this early on in our series a couple of summers ago, but I want us to get a good understanding of Luke's intent when he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. You see, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts sort of to go together, and we don't often have them to go together, but they're written to the same person. His name was Theophilus, and the good, the good news is it not only Theophilus gets to be, a, to be blessed by uh, the story and all that he shares in Luke and Acts, but we get to look on as well and learn from this. Now, if you're in our Acts uh, leadership cohort, let me see your hands if you're in here this morning. We got, how many do we have in there, D? 15 or 20? 14, 15. We started with 15 or 20. <laughs> uh, did you finish today or? One wrap-up discussion. Well, I'm so proud of, of, of uh, Dee's, one of our elders, and uh, just the group that's been going through this Acts seminary-level course. And so we're thankful for you guys. And, and I'm, I know you're going to be watching me today as, and this summer as we get into the book of Acts. I'm just waiting on all the... Uh, corrections, and I'll probably need them. So anyway, we're so thankful for them and what God's showing them in that, in that study. Well, we see that Luke is writing this, this book uh, of Acts, and a lot of your Bibles say, they call it Acts of the Apostles. And the reality is it's really more like Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostles are there, but it's not about them, is it? It's about what God is doing in the church. He, he'd written the Gospel of Luke to show who Jesus is and what he's done. And, and the importance of what he's, what he's done for the world, right? And then he writes the book of Acts to show sort of what the church is doing, what God is doing through the church and how the church is being established and expanded around the world. If you read the book of Acts, the whole thing, like these students are in our cohort, if you read that book of Acts over and over and over, which you kind of have to do in the Acts cohort, you begin to get a, a 30,000 foot view of what Luke is doing. Now, I mentioned this a couple of summers ago, and we learned this in the Acts cohort. We have chapters in our Bibles throughout the book of Acts. Somebody came in there, and they put in, obviously put in those chapter distinctions. But Luke, when he wrote this, he didn't have those. And, but he did have some sections. Uh, theologian Gordon Fee says in, his, in, in one of his articles that, that basically there are these six sections that run throughout the book of, Luke, uh, book of Acts. And what they do is they show us kind of a 30,000-foot view of what God is doing as he's expanding the church. And so this morning, I want us to kind of just remind us of those 
sections, if you will. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verse 24. This is the verse, the very last verse that we studied at the end of last summer in the book of Acts in our story of the church series. It just says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. It's kind of a, it kind of captures uh, some of what God had been doing through that section of the book. I want to take you back, however, to uh, the first section. The first section that Luke writes about is from chapter 1 all the way through uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And what it deals with is the church in Jerusalem. What it deals with is Jewish people becoming Christian people. It deals with priests becoming Christians. It deals with a lot of Jewish activity around the temple. And so we see that the first thing Luke wants to show us in the book of Acts is what God is doing specifically in Jerusalem. So look with me at Acts 6-7. It says this. This is the end statement of Luke in that first section. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So Luke kind of wraps up the first section, what's happened in Jerusalem. And then from Acts 6-7 all the way through Acts 9-31, He's going to begin to show us what happened in uh, the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. Remember when Jesus said, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the rest of the world, right? Well, this is the Judea and Samaria and Galilee kind of portion. He says in, at the end of section 2, if you would, Acts 9.31, he said, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. So that finished up section two. I'm showing you this because last summer we finished up section three, which ended with Acts 12, 24. It says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So this is just kind of giving us a 30,000 foot view of what God is doing through the sections. So we see the first section is Jerusalem. The second section is Judea and Samaria, Galilee. The third section is going to be uh, what God is continuing to do through the church to the Gentiles, the beginning of the Antioch church. And then there's obviously three more sections. So we're halfway there, which is, which is good. You know, this is our third summer in the book of Acts. If you want to know the other uh, ending statements for those sections, I'll just give them to you really quickly here if you're taking notes. Acts 16.5 is kind of wraps up Paul's leadership and, and, and ministry to the Gentiles and that whole section. Uh, The fifth section ends with Acts 19.20 and the mission moving into Europe and Jews rejecting the gospel and Gentiles accepting the gospel. And then, of course, the last and final end of the section is the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28.30, where we see Paul's been on trial. He's moved to Rome and God has continued to use his life up until the point he gives his life as a martyr for the mission to go forward. And so I wanted us to get a sense of kind of where we sit in our story and get an understanding that Luke's position here is to show us the overall understanding of what God is doing in mission through the church, what he wants to do around the world and how we see these stories and miracles and the, and the work and the acts of the Holy Spirit doing amazing things just as Jesus said in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And now that we start our, our third summer moving into the fourth section of the book of Acts, we get to get into the, the uttermost parts of the world. That's kind of where we're looking at beginning today. So what's happened is the Spirit of God has caused these miracles to take place, signs and wonders, and people are getting saved. By the way, when people get saved, that's the greatest miracle there is. That's the greatest miracle there can ever be when God takes a dead heart and makes it alive 
in Christ. And so we see these people radically changed by the gospel of Jesus. And then others are being radically changed. And then they form these communities. And out of these communities, they form churches. And we see that, that Jesus is establishing his church. Remember what he said? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Luke is showing us that. It's not, there's not, uh, Sanhedrin is not going to come against it and stop it. Uh, synagogues aren't going to stop it. Dissension in the church, narrow-mindedness in the church, right? These things aren't going to happen. They're not going to stop the mission of Jesus. Prison or death won't stop the mission of Jesus going forward to the world. And guess what? It's still not going to stop it. Not in Southwest Little Rock or anywhere on the earth. Amen? Because this is Jesus' church. And he said he'll build it. I, I get confused sometimes and think I'm the one building it. And I confess that before you and say I'm sorry. And, and I want us to understand that it's Jesus and he alone that builds his church. And so we just submit to that and say, God, do it here. Do it here. So our text this morning, if we're staying right in line, is going to lead us into Acts 13. Now here's what's interesting. <laughs> Acts 13 is going to show this beautiful picture of a pretty beautiful church. And what we're going to see in this beautiful church is them beginning to send some people on mission. And if we were to stay right in line with our reading and with our text teaching, like as we have through the summers, uh, you would hear about that mission sending aspect. But I, I got to mention this to you. The church just doesn't open its doors and start sending missionaries. Not even at Antioch. There's a process that happens in the church. I had a great conversation with one of our partners on Sunday, uh, just coincidentally, honestly. And she said, she was serving over in the, in the nursery last Sunday, and she said, you know, I'm just really praying. I'm hoping we can really get more into mission. I'm excited about what, what God wants to do around the world, and I hope that we as a church can support more missionaries and, and be more missional. I said, absolutely. I said, were you in the service? Because we preached on mission today. She's like, no, I was serving over in the, and I said, well, that's okay. Listen to that. But this summer we're teaching through Acts and that's going to be a missions focused and minded series. But the reality is it, a church doesn't just open its doors and begin to send missionaries. There is a process that happens and we're no different than any other church. We're growing into what it means to be a missional church. And we're going to see that in the book uh, of Acts chapter 11 in the church at Antioch. So let's take a look at how they got started. I'm going to back us up just a little bit to give us a little runway into our text for 13 uh, today to help us see how did the church at Antioch get to the place where they're ready to send people on mission. All right, so look with me at Acts 11:19, just as a review of what's happening here. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So I mentioned this a little bit last uh, Sunday in the message. So Stephen has been stoned by the Sanhedrin. They've rushed at him, they've stoned him, they've murdered him. 
And now the church in Jerusalem is scared to death. They're fleeing for their lives. They, they think, we, I could be next, right? And the Bible says in Acts that, that Saul, before his conversion, was kind of leading this effort. He's pulling people out of their homes, men and women, pulling them out of their homes to persecute them. People are dying as a result of knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior. So this is a scary time for the church in Jerusalem. And yet, God still has a plan, and God still works through scary moments. Did you know that? He does. And so this was part of Jesus' prophecy that the gospel would go forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the rest of the world through this persecution. So it's Stephen's death that causes the church in Jerusalem to get out of their comfort zone, if they had one, into the rest of the world. And what do they do? They begin to share their story of God's grace and his goodness. The greatest miracle that they've experienced, the greatest miracle they've seen, which is his redemption of their souls, right? Now, it's always easy, I think, in the book of Acts, because we look at it sort of compressed. And I think it's easy to look at it and just kind of read it and go, well, that all kind of happened. And we don't get a sense of time, right? And I think it's good for us to kind of look and think about the time frame that this took place. Now, from Pentecost, theologians believe it was anywhere from maybe three to five years from when persecution began. So we have Pentecost, and then we see the church, this beautiful example of the church in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and we see God doing amazing things there. And then uh, persecution happens maybe three to five years after that takes place. We see Saul, when he's converted on the road to Damascus, is a couple of years after that. So this is maybe six, seven years after Pentecost. And then we see Barnabas in Acts 11 sent uh, to the church in Antioch, and this is maybe... um, a few years after that. So we're 10 or 11 years after Pentecost. And then when P, uh, Paul and Barnabas are together pastoring and sent on the first missionary journey, it could be as many as 12 or 13 years from Pentecost. But we can read all this little section and not realize that all that time has taken place. And we forget that mission takes time. I think we do some things too slow. And I think we do some things too fast. <laughs> And we got to have the right amount of, of, of that in the right thing. But it's easy to look at this sort of compressed and not realize that there's been some really significant life taking place in all of this. So these people leave Jerusalem from being persecuted. And they're doing what you would do, which is, i got to tell you this thing that happened in my life. i got, I got to explain to you this, this grace that I've seen. i got to explain to this, these miracles that took place that I can't even, I can't explain. But Jesus is real and he's the Messiah. And they begin to share this with Jews all over uh, the known world. And they begin to spread out. As they're doing this, they're speaking only to Jews. There's about a 10-year period where they're preaching mainly to Jews before we see Peter and Cornelius and the the gospel going to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul kind of explains this in Romans 1.16 where he says that the gospel will go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? This is all fulfillment of prophecy, But what I think is so cool about the fact that these people have left Jerusalem and they're sharing their story of grace and the goodness of Jesus to other people that they meet, we don't have their names. Isn't that cool? Because it's not about them. And it's not about us. These, These people are moving out of Jerusalem and they're sharing the story of Jesus, but Luke doesn't record their names. I I gotta believe he probably knew who who they were. And Luke's trying to say something to us. It's not about them. It's about the expansion of the gospel of Jesus and his church. And so they're sharing the gospel. 
So the church of Jerusalem, which is kind of the mother church, right? They hear something's going on in Antioch. What, what is happening and, and who do we send? Well, they look around the church. See, we, we didn't know a whole lot about Barnabas. We, we know from Acts 4 that, that uh, Barnabas is an encourager. We know that he's a good church member. We know that he sold some property. We know that he's a, a wholehearted worshiper because Luke sort of uh, contrasts the heart of giving with Barnabas and that of Ananias and Sapphira. And we get to see the difference between giving with a right heart and what happens when we give or pose in some way in inauthenticity. And we see, and they end up dead, right? And so we, we've learned a few things through Barnabas' life, but he's, he's a church member. And he's a good, godly man who loves Jesus, which, by the way, can I just say, should be the progression of every person in this building. We should go from somebody who doesn't know Jesus to somebody who does know Jesus, somebody who knows Jesus and wants to know him more. We're growing in our discipleship. And then from somebody who knows Jesus as a disciple who wants to go make him known to the world, there's a progression we see in Barnabas' life. We see it's connected to his giving, his money, his life. Right? To everything, he, he, he gives it all to the Lord. That's why I said last week, we give, a, we give a blank check to God and say, Lord, you spend my life however you choose. But Barnabas gets to Antioch, and he does something that a great leader would do. He gets there, and he sees that there are a lot of Gentiles that need Jesus, and he can't do it all on his own. He sees that he, he, God's doing something amazing, but I can't do this on my own. We see that the very first step with Barnabas and his leadership is humility, right? And he goes, wait, wait, there's this guy I met, Saul, who said that God had called him to reach the Gentiles. This is the place he needs to be. Now, here's the thing about Barnabas and Saul's relationship. They knew each other. Do you remember back in, in the book of Acts, Saul is converted in Acts 9, he, he becomes a disciple. He gets baptized. The Bible says that he goes off into Arabia for a few years. And then ultimately he gets to come, he comes to Jerusalem. And when Saul comes to Jerusalem, the apostles are like, no thanks. Don't want to meet Saul. That's the Saul that killed people and drunk. Remember, they didn't want to know, they didn't want to know Saul. That name was connected to um, something bad, the persecution. They didn't want to know him. They didn't want to meet him. It was Barnabas who said, no, 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 no. You guys got to hear Saul preach. You need to see his heart. You got to see that, that God changed him drastically, radically, and now see that he's preaching for Jesus. And so it's Barnabas that, that defends him to the apostles. Ultimately, they're afraid for Saul's life, and they let him down a, in a basket down the wall, and they send him back home to this place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so when Barnabas gets to Antioch and he sees all the work and all the things that need to be done and all the Gentiles that need to be saved and discipled, he goes, Paul's the man, Saul's the man. And so he goes off, which is north to modern-day Turkey, to Tarsus, to find Paul, Saul. And so he gets Saul, he brings him back, and they, they teach for a year. They disciple this group of people for a year together. They become kind of co-pastors at the church of Antioch. And uh, this is a beautiful, beautiful place. And I, but I got to say this again, missional progress takes time. It takes time. I, I get frustrated. I want us to move faster. I want us to grow more. Not so we can have a ton of people, but that we can do the work that God has called us to with the resources we need to reach this community and see people come to know Jesus and have the life that he wants to give them. That's, that's the heart of why we do what we do. 
But missional progress takes time. You know, we just turned two on Easter this year. South City just turned two years old. And we've not just been building South City, we've been deconstructing what a lot of us kind of understand the church to be. We spent two years kind of going, no, that's not what the church is supposed to be. But let's look at what the church is supposed to be. Yeah, and that may not be exactly what the church is supposed to be, but let's, let's move in this direction. We've taken two years to try and deconstruct and then kind of rebuild. Missional progress takes time. It took time for Antioch. Well, there's some things that I see just in this Antioch church. For the next few minutes, I want to just kind of look at the elements of an effective church. Because I, I want us to be an effective church. And I want us to do exactly what God has called us to do as a church. And, and I see these things represented in the church at Antioch. So let's take a quick look. Uh, on your card, you'll notice I got a couple different sections of fill-ins. You won't believe it. It's a true story. So yesterday I was praying for you and praying for our message. And I just felt led to cut the message in half and shelve half of it for next week. So it's going to be this much shorter. But uh, yeah, so we're, the second half of that we'll just save for next week, okay, and we'll, we'll uh, look at that then. But let's just focus today on the elements of an effective church that we see at the Antioch Church. First thing we see in Acts 11, 19 through 21, is these guys that are not given names here in this moment, they're sharing the story of Jesus. They're preaching the Word of God, what He has done in them and what they've seen. They are evangelists, right? The first effective thing we see in this church is that Evangelism is a big part of the church. It's a big part of what they do. In fact, it starts the church. It should start any church. We preach the word of God and people get saved. And my question to us this morning as I go through these elements, I want each of these elements to be something that we put a mirror up in front of each of our faces. And we say, God, is that me? Am I living that way that I should? As we see these elements in the Antioch church, do we see these elements in South City? And you're who makes up South City, right? We're a family of families, which is made up of individuals. And we need to be these people who are telling this greatest story that could be told. The story of grace, of a, of a dead heart coming alive by Jesus and him alone. But they're evangelists. They're, they're, they're working through evangelism to tell people about Jesus. A couple of days ago, I was sitting in Sam's with my 12-year-old. And kind of having a little father-daughter moment. And it was sweet. She, she's the one who said, hey, daddy, it's kind of like a daddy-daughter date. And I was like, hey, awesome. And for, we ate for five bucks, so that's even better, you know, at, at Sam's. Really cool place to go and eat. And uh, one thing as you're, as you're eating at Sam's is there's a lot of people at Sam's, right? And I just, I try to find these little moments of teachable, teachableness. And I said, hey, days, I said, um, I want you to turn around and look at everybody. She turned around and I said, uh, you see all these people? She said, yeah. I said, think about them this way. Some of them know Jesus and some of them don't. Some of them are going to go to heaven because they know Jesus and some of them are going to go to an awful place, hell. And she said, oh my gosh, daddy, I've never thought of it that way. I said, well, we have to have God's eyes and we have to begin to look at the world the way he sees it. And consider that some people know him and some people don't. And we got to make the effort to find out who knows what, right? We got to make the effort to help people understand they need Jesus so that as best we can, no one goes to hell. And she's like, 
wow, it just kind of blew her mind a little bit. And you could see her kind of looking around like, does that guy know? Does she know? You know? It's a good thing to be reminded that we need God's eyes, that there are people who are dying and going to hell, and it's up to us to speak the truth, to be evangelistic with our lives. Is there somebody around your life that you can tell the truth? Is there somebody around your life, around your work, around your home, that, that maybe a conversation could lead them to a, a saving relationship with Jesus? Church, we, we got to found who we are as a church on evangelism. It's got to be who we are. We've got to tell this beautiful story of Jesus' love for us that he gave his life for us. We've got to be willing to tell it. It will make us who we're going to be or we're going to be a country club, right? No, we've got to tell the gospel of Jesus to people who don't know him. Second thing we see in Acts 11, 22 through 26 we see Paul and Barnabas making disciples. It's not just enough that people are saved, right? Not just enough that they've come to know Jesus. No, they've spent a year, day and night with these brothers and sisters, taking them deeper in the gospel of Jesus. How are you doing? How are we doing as a church? Do we know him? Or are you good? Can you say, no, I've got all the knowledge I need of Jesus. Now, I got it all figured out. I, got, I, I pretty well know where. Probably not. We all need to grow in our relationship with him. We all need to grow in our knowledge of him. And let me just tell you, this culture and this world is not going to slow down so you can catch up. They're coming at us. We need to know his word. We need to know the truth. We need to be able to give that truth to people. And we need to stand for that truth. But we can't do it unless we're disciples of Jesus. And we see Paul and Barnabas making this a high value. They evangelized people. They discipled people. Here's the third thing we see at the church of Antioch in, in Acts 11, 27 through 30. They were kingdom-minded people. As you read through there, you see that, that this prophet said, hey, the Jerusalem church is, is in Jerusalem area is going through a famine. And we need to send some resources. We need to send some money to help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem in the area. And so for the first time, we see a church go, not think about themselves, not think about their well-being, but gather resources together so they can send those to other brothers and sisters. They had a kingdom mentality, but how often is the church just focused on ourselves? It's all about us. I've heard things come out of my mouth about other churches, other church plants, and, and fearful. But it's not about us. Until every soul is saved in Southwest Little Rock, we need more churches. We need more preachers. We need more disciple-making entities and, and families and church plants. They're kingdom-minded. And this morning, I want us to bring us up to speed in our text, if I can, in Acts chapter 12, verse 25. Look at it with me. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So this is saying they've gone and given that money, they've given those resources to the church in Jerusalem, and now they've come back, and they brought with them John Mark, okay? So let's get into where we're caught up now, chapter 13, and get a picture of the leadership, at least, of the church at Antioch. Verse, verse 1, from chapter 13 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the elements of an effective church, evangelism, discipleship, kingdom-minded mentality, and then the fourth thing we see at the church of Antioch is a high value of multicultural leadership. A high value of multicultural body life. And I don't think this is just descriptive. I really don't. I don't believe this is just descriptive of the Antioch church. I think God is saying something to his church that we value every race, every culture. In fact, Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 2, that he's torn down any walls between them. He's created one race of people, Christians. That's who he's created. And we see that playing out in the Antioch church. We've got Barnabas. Now, Barnabas is this encouraging guy. He's from the island of Cyprus. He's Mediterranean looking, right? He's Middle Eastern looking, if you will. Then we have Simeon. He's called Niger, which in Latin literally means black. Simeon is a black man. Uh, many people think he's from North Africa, maybe Serene. Uh, and some people think that he's actually the Simon of Mark 15. Look with me in Mark 15, 21. It says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Remember when Jesus had been flogged and he's, he's carrying his cross and he falls down weak. And they get somebody who's just watching the sight. Jesus walked by. You, you, you come, come carry the cross. That was Simon of Serene. And he, he carries Jesus' cross all the way to Mount Calvary. Now, we don't know for sure that this is the Simeon that we read about here in Acts 13. We don't know. But you can imagine that it changed that man's life forever. We do know that in Acts 2, that there are people from Serene at Pentecost. So it's at least possible that this man and others from the area have seen the Holy Spirit fall in power, move, seen Jesus crucified and been around the church and maybe moved out of Jerusalem after the persecution to make disciples. It's possible this is the same guy. I don't know, but I like the story. Here's the third guy, Lucius from Serene. Again, modern-day Libya. This is North Africa. So we've got uh, Barnabas from Cyprus, uh, Simeon potentially from North Africa or Serene, and uh, Lucius from Serene. Then we have Menean. says he's a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this Herod is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. And so I want you to know this is the Herod that chops off John the Baptist's head. This is the Herod that holds... Uh, the trial for Jesus before his crucifixion. And it's no small footnote <laughs> that Menean was raised with Herod, the Tetrion. No small footnote. The very man that held Jesus on trial grew up with this man, Menean. So at the very least, in fact, in the Greek, it, it leads us to believe that this man nursed at the same breast as Herod, the Tetrarch. That's what it means in the Greek. A foster brother? I, I don't know. But he's now shown here as one of the leaders of the Antioch church. So we've got, and then of course we also have Saul. So what we have is we have two black Africans, two Middle Easterners, and one Roman. And one church. Do you see that? Do you see the beauty of that diversity? It's beautiful. It's beautiful, and I believe God is not just describing something, but prescribing something for his church. 
The last thing we see as an element of an effective church besides evangelism, discipleship, kingdom-mindedness, multicultural value as a high value in leadership and and in body life. And by the way, I want to say this too. From the day God called me to come and be a part of what he was doing here in this area and in this this church, I've had a vision and a desire for us to have an an African-American teaching pastor. We, we, We can't afford that right now. But from day one, before day one, that has been on my heart. And I honestly, I, our elders know this, and we're praying for this. I honestly feel like we're not complete as, as a team until we see that represented in our staff and more so in our body. That's, that is my heart. I long for us to be able to reach this community with the people who look like the rest of the community, all of us, for us all to be together and us look a little bit more like the Antioch Church. Here's the fifth thing, the last element I want to give you this morning of... Uh, an effective church out of Acts 13, verse 2, says that the leaders were worshiping and praying. And then a little bit later, later when they send them off, they're, they're, they're praying and they're fasting. They're worshiping, they're fasting. This is a spirit-led church. With all my heart, I pray that we are becoming a spirit-led church. I love the fact that we see <laughs> these guys aren't doing some sort of strategy. They're not, they're not necessarily just reading the current book of what, how to do church. Right? They're, they're just seeking the Lord. They're just worshiping Jesus. They're fasting and saying, God, nothing matters more to us than you, not even food. And they're seeking the Lord with all they are. And it's in that culture, it's in that atmosphere that the Spirit of God speaks to them. And says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. It is my heart that our elders, that our staff, that our church be a spirit-led church. That we are serious about prayer. We are serious about fasting. We're serious about worship. Because that's when the Lord speaks to his people. If we're going to be obedient, we have to, uh, we have to do what he says to do. If we're going to be obedient, we have to go when he says to go. But I want you to notice something that's interesting about this call of the Holy Spirit. When he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, he doesn't give a whole lot of details on what that's going to look like, right? Kind of reminds me of Abram. Remember what he said to Abram? He said, go to the land, I'll show you. And Abram's like, "Uh uh-huh. It sounds a little bit like a time in my life, too. I was working at a church in, uh, Livingston, Texas. I was a youth pastor, and we loved those people, and we loved that church. It was a great church. It still is a great church. We loved those students. God was doing amazing things. We had only been there for less than a year, and we had no desire to go anywhere, and yet the Lord placed a call on my heart to go into music ministry full-time, and I remember talking to Lori and going, I I don't know. This seems crazy that we would leave what God's doing here and but it was so clear. He literally revealed to us he wanted us to go. We didn't know where we were going to work. We didn't know where we were going to live. We didn't know what we were going to do. You remember that phone call, Dad? I called my dad. He used to own a business in town. I said, Dad, can you use uh, a, a driver and a waitress at the, at the deli? He's like, nope. <laughs> he said, I just don't have any space. And then about a week later, he gives me a call. And he says, son, 
I don't know what to tell you, but actually, I could use a waitress, and I could use your help taking deliveries, and not only that, but your grandfather is going to have to be put in a nursing home, and we can't rent his home. We actually have a home for you to live in. And we watch God develop every step after step, but that only happened when we said, we'll go. We already had plans to go. We were already going, even though we didn't know where we were going. And I want to say that to us this morning because God's calling some of you on a very specific mission, and you don't know the details. You don't know where, you don't know how, you don't know when or what, and that's okay. He's faithful to provide step after step after step if you just stay connected to him, right? Because apart from him, we can do nothing. But he will provide every single thing you need. And it's my heart and prayer that God would continue to pull you away from here into the world for his mission. I, uh, I didn't want to just jump into our text this morning, into 13, and see that, hey, look at the church of Antioch, how awesome they are. They sent people on mission. It just doesn't happen that way. It's not happening that way at South City. It's our vision one day that we, we, want, to, we want to plant 10 churches in 10 years. Well, we just celebrated our second anniversary, so now we're saying, we want to plant 10 churches in eight years. We haven't changed the vision. But it takes time for missional progress to happen. But what it means is we're getting closer. We're getting closer, and I believe God is going to begin to plant churches through our church. I believe God is going to begin to send missionaries through our church for his glory. That's our prayer. That's our job with the Great Commission, isn't it? But it's not going to happen with us on the couch. It's not going to happen with, with our faith being secondary and, and tertiary in our lives. No, we have to say, Jesus, you're everything to me. And if you say go, I'll go. You just tell me where, whenever. It doesn't even have to be now. You just tell me to go and I'll go. That's who we have to be. How are you in these areas that we've talked about this morning? Evangelism, how you doing? Discipleship, are, are you as deep as God wants to take you in knowing him? Being kingdom-minded and realizing that we are one church and that we are, we're, we're drawn together by the grace of God and blessing other churches, other believers. What are your thoughts on the multicultural relationships? Do you have them? You're still kind of having boundaries. Friends, we got to break through the boundaries. we got to tear down the dividing wall. See, we don't, we don't do it. Jesus has already done it for us. He's already done it. We're one in Christ. And then are we a spirit-led people? Are you a spirit-led believer? Willing to say, God, you don't even have to give me the details. Just tell me to go. I think these elements in, in the church in Antioch, Show us what an effective church can look like. And out of that effectiveness, we see God begin the first missionary journey through uh, Paul and Barnabas. And uh, I'm excited to preach the second half of this message next week. Probably won't be any shorter, but, you know, we'll, we can always hope, right? Friends, we can't do this uh, unless our eyes change. Unless, like Daisy, you can begin to go, Look at everyone in this room, everyone outside of this room as people who either know Jesus or don't know Jesus. Friend, where do you even stand today? Do you know him? 
Have you trusted him with everything? Because if you haven't, you can today. You don't have to wait another hour. You don't have to wait another day. You can know him today, and he loves you. You can have the greatest miracle that there ever could be in him changing your dead heart to a live one by his grace if you'll trust him. And we're going to be up here. We're going to be praying for you in just a little while. First, we're going to take communion as a church. And I love the fact that we get to kind of start our series off in the book of Acts, uh, celebrating the beautiful story of Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection as the body of Christ. So this is how we'll do communion this morning, the way we do it. Uh, one of the ways that we do it is, is a process called intinction. And it just means that you're going to take the bread and you're going to dip it in the juice and you're going to eat it. So you don't drink out of the cup, okay? We just dip it in the cup and then we eat the bread. Uh, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you love him, you're living for him, we want to invite you to be a part of this communion time. If you're in good standing with your church, we'd invite you to, to do that with us. If you don't know Christ, or maybe there's something going on in your life that you need to just step back from communion today and just pray about what this story of Jesus dying for you means, then maybe don't take communion today. Step back from it. But this is a part of our worship as we celebrate the beautiful story of his life and his death and his resurrection, what it means for us as a church, becoming the church that we can be and the church that he wants us to be. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go into this time of communion. It's, it's self-led. So that means as the Lord leads you, there's four stations around the room, and two in the back and two in the front. Feel free to come take communion as you feel led, and part of our worship today will be this communion time through this song of worship. Let's pray. Father God, you're so good, and, and we love you so very much. Lord, I thank you for the greatest miracle in my life, that you changed me. You pulled me out of the pit, out of the mud, out of the miry clay, and you set my foot upon a rock, and you placed a God song in my mouth and helped me to share the story of Jesus that all would be saved. God, that is my story. That is who I am, and I, I celebrate my salvation in you, Jesus, and the gift that you've given us through your sacrifice. God, right now, as we, we pause and we come to your altar, we come to this table, we remember that gift. We remember that life given for us. We know, Lord, that you are our only hope. And so as we remember, Father, would you help us to be a thankful and grateful people? And would this time of taking communion help us to leave here and take not just the service, but this message of Jesus to the world, to those who don't know you, Lord? We don't have to do it alone. We do it as a body together, and we do it ultimately because you said you would be with us and you'd go with us to the ends of the earth. We love you, Lord. We rest in you, and we celebrate this story through communion now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.